You are listening to Health Interventions for Your Practice, episode number 10. Health Interventions has been created by Marsha Kessner, MP, to help other nurse practitioners and medical providers grow their clinical practice and optimize patient care. Whether you are brand new, building your skills and confidence, or a seasoned provider looking to stay sharp in an ever-changing patient population, you will find real-world information to use in everyday practice. Health Interventions for Your Practice focuses on a solid evaluation, lifestyle management, and patient involvement. Hello, welcome back to Health Interventions for Your Practice with me, Marsha Kessner. My goal with this podcast is to support other nurse practitioners and medical providers with knowledge and skill development in a way that is applicable and ready to implement into clinical practice. I will be focusing on lifestyle management and patient involvement every chance I get. In today's episode, we're going to go a little bit into assessing tremor. We will take a look into the neurologic system, review useful information for the evaluation of tremor, and walk through the differentiating of the diagnosis of tremor, and of course, much, much more. So, okay, to get started, if you listen to my podcast, you know that I talk quite a bit about assessment skills and observation skills that lead to excellence in assessing for the unspoken symptoms. There are many valuable clues to be found in observation that will improve your interview skills and what we will call your investigator skills into the disease process. I had not planned to begin doing um, some of these very specific podcasts on isolated disease processes yet, but I got so excited with the mention of Parkinson's disease and neurologic dysfunction and a few other areas um, that we went through in the pre-assessment podcast that I could not resist interjecting one very specific disease-oriented podcast in here. So as I had mentioned in my very first podcast, I have a background in neurology. That was my very first position as an advanced practice nurse, and I can't begin to tell you how valuable that position has been for the rest of my career so far. You see, many people are baffled by the neurologic system in diagnosing neurologic disorders. It's very complex. I won't lie about that. I spent many hours studying diagrams and books and doing my homework beyond the education that I was receiving while I was in training. I got to work as the triage nurse for the neurology practice while I was completing my master's degree to become an advanced practice nurse. And during that time, I not only had the value of being able to talk to the patients when they contacted the office for medication questions, symptomatology, and other issues that needed to be addressed, I was able to learn from a top-notch neurologist that loved to educate. So I got to see things from both sides at the same time. And I sucked up every bit of knowledge I possibly could. Because, in case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm quite a nerd when it comes to the medical field and learning. The more I can learn, the better. I am always willing to take another course, read another book, follow another respected provider, and learn everything that I can from their clinical expertise. The value that I got from seeing things from both sides during the time I was the triage nurse really catapulted my ability to manage patients in my primary care practice, which I now own with neurologic impairments. When I got the advanced practice level, got to the advanced practice level within the neurology practice and was performing the examinations myself and doing the patient interview prior to the examination, I was blown away at how many things were not addressed in the primary care setting for these people. 
now that I'm in primary care practice myself, I can see that it's very busy and you have many things to manage um, that often something which is perceived quite as complex as um, neurology often gets sent off to the specialist. However, I'm going to give you some tips and tricks along the way on how to manage or at least diagnose common neurologic disorders in your primary care clinic. Then you can decide if they are manageable by you or if you want to refer them. So since I had mentioned uh, Parkinson's specifically, uh, but I would like to do is what I want to do is actually go into um, giving you some tips on the assessment related to tremor. Because just the diagnosis of tremor alone does not make it Parkinson's. There are many criteria that go into the Parkinson's diagnosis. The tremor is just one of the hallmark signs of Parkinson's disease, followed by bradykinesias. And just in case you're not up on that terminology, that means the slowing down of muscle movement. So not all Parkinson's diagnoses actually start with a tremor. How about that for a tidbit of knowledge for you? Now, tremor, though, what exactly is a tremor? A tremor is a repetitive motion that is uncontrollable of a particular body part. When you look at a tremor, you want to note the location, the amplitude, if it's present at rest or with activity, and follow through with your questioning as appropriate to get the information you need for this differential. Many times, a tremor is not a presenting symptom for a patient. There are times that it is not even noticeable to the patient. It is often brought up by someone else. If someone has a tremor of the head, which is often called a head titubation, it can actually be embarrassing to the patient. It can cause the patient to refrain from social activities, increasing their isolation and causing them quite a bit of distress. When you're doing your pre-assessment, as we discussed in the last episode, a tremor of the head could have been one of the things that you picked up on. If so, this is how I would proceed with that, had the patient not already brought it up. If your patient has already brought it up, then you can just skip right ahead to the questions. But on examination, I start the conversation with, were you aware that you had a bit of a tremor of your head? If they did not, I will let them know what my observation was and that it's a common finding that is often associated with an excitability of beta receptors. If it doesn't bother the patient, I simply reassure them that it is a benign finding and not associated with Parkinson's disease. We all know that Michael J. Fox made Parkinson's disease famous, as it also instilled some fear into patients about getting that disease. This is why you have to be sensitive when you address things. If the patient has noticed that tremor of the that tremor of the head or maybe a head bobbing, they might refer to it, I will ask more specific questions. Do you notice this more when you are stressed or in front of people? Are you able to control it? Does it get better or worse if you drink alcohol? Do you have a tremor anywhere else? Most often, the essential tremor, which it is called, will improve with alcohol consumption. Sometimes, head titubation is associated with tremor in other locations, but not always. If so, a tremor of the upper extremity would be the most likely associated location. I will have already observed for any other kind of tremor at rest activity prior to my inquiry for detailed information. 
If you have not made note of your observations prior to the questioning, the tremor might increase with their anxiety of addressing that situation. This, however, is still another helpful part of the assessment. The specific questioning for the differential diagnosis that I do is as follows. Number one, is there tremor in one hand or is it in both? Number two, when do you notice the tremor? Number three, is the tremor at rest or when you're doing trying something specific? For example, does the tremor get worse when you are trying to drink a cup of coffee or eat from a spoon or is it just at rest? Four, have you noticed that the tremor gets worse when you're anxious? Number five, do you have any control over the tremor at all? Number six, did the tremor come on all of a sudden or did you notice it over time? Number seven, does anyone else in your family have a tremor like this? Number eight, how long have you had the tremor? Number nine, does alcohol make the tremor better or worse? Number 10, do you have any symptoms with the tremor? Any other symptoms? That may be, that may have started at the same time as you notice the tremor. That might be things like slurred speech or weakness of the arm. Number 11, have you noticed that it is hard for you to get up from a chair? Do you have to push off with your hands or grab onto something to get out of the chair? Number 12, do you feel like you've maybe slowed down a bit? 13, do you shuffle your feet? And question 14, do you have any trouble with your balance? This series of questioning is to help differentiate between what we're calling an intention tremor and a Parkinsonian tremor. You see, an intention tremor is almost always associated with the overstimulation of the beta receptors. It can also be a result of a stroke that has occurred in the brain in an area such as the substantia nigra of the brain. If you don't remember that term or you're not even sure where the heck in the brain that is, don't worry. This is just one of those advanced things that I picked up on in the neurology practice. It was not something that I readily recalled from any of my education. The point of this area's involvement, though, is what it has to do with the dopamine receptors. So now that you have asked the questions, you need to follow up with an assessment to support the path you follow for the diagnosis. Giving someone the diagnosis of Parkinson's is very serious and could lead to a lot of distress and anxiety for the patient. If you give someone the diagnosis of an intention tremor and treat that accordingly while reassuring them that it's a benign nature most often, then you have helped that patient incredibly. You have saved them a trip from the neurologist as well as probably a few sleepless nights and unnecessary fear. For the examination phase, first, I would like to take a look at their facial features. Is there a lot of movement in the face or are they a bit flat and blunted? Does their speech seem slow to you? It may not have been quite obvious until you started asking the tremor discussion, but now pay close attention. When they walk, do they swing both arms normally as they walk, or do they stay pretty close to their sides and not moving much? Do they pick up their feet, or do they tend to shuffle their feet? As for the tremor, is it in one arm or both? Is it at rest or while you were talking to them and distracting them? 
or is it when they're doing something? Like when they're pointing to something or raising their hand to correlate with something else that you guys have been discussing. When you do your physical hands-on assessment, check for a thing called cogwheeling. The assessment for cogwheeling takes a little bit of practice. But what cogwheeling is, is a bit of an impedance in the loose natural flow of passive rotation of the wrist in a circular motion. You will notice that there's a little bit of a sticking that is called cogwheeling. The other thing that you want to do while keeping the hand as relaxed as possible, take the hand inside of your hand, interlace your fingers, raise the hand up and down. Does it go with ease? Or does it feel a little bit stiff? Now check the tone of some other muscles. How about their biceps and their lower extremities? Does there seem to be an increased tone of those muscles? This is very important to your differential diagnosis. Let's go through the differential diagnosis now that you have collected some data into in the interview and physical examination. So in the differential, first we'll look at intention tremor. An intention tremor is uncontrollable movements that are often not perceivable to the patient unless they're attempting to actually use a specific muscle group that is affected by the tremor. So intention, as in you intend to do something. This is also sometimes referred to as an essential tremor, but to help you with your differential, if you think of that as when you intend to do something, for example, taking a drink from a cup or sipping soup from a spoon. One of the best questions to assess this is to ask, do you spill your coffee on you or do you avoid eating soup because you might spill it on you due to the tremor? An intention tremor is a benign finding related to a beta receptor excitability. It does not cause any long-term problems and typically does not involve any other body parts aside from the head or a unilateral extremity. It is very commonly and very effectively treated with the use of a beta blocker, typically Enderol. Use a long-acting release if possible. Unfortunately, the insurance companies will block you from using the long-acting formulation a lot of times. Now let's look at Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is often known by its hallmark presentation of a tremor at rest, often associated with what we call a pill-rolling quality and bradykinesias. Parkinson's is more of a systemic progressive disease with hypertonicity of the muscles and the slowing down. The area of the brain that is affected in Parkinson's is the substantia nigra. There are still, and that's in the brainstem, there are still no definitive causes of Parkinson's disease. It's hypothesized that is associated with exposure to heavy metals and pesticides. The treatment, though, is to control the symptoms. There is no hard data on prevention of progression, and the um, progression is quite variable in each person. So symptom management is vital. Should you start the treatment for Parkinson's, the gold standard with this is Cinemet, or Carbidopa Levodopa, which works at the dopamine receptors to ease movements and lessen tremor activity. There are also some new patches that are long-acting to help with the um, improvement of function and decreasing symptoms by decreasing the hypertonicity associated with Parkinson's and easing up those movements. If you feel sure of the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, I encourage you to make that referral to neurology. You can initiate the Cinemat for symptomatic control until they get there, Um, but... 
definitely pass this one along. And also of mention is that there is no diagnostic test for Parkinson's. It's usually a diagnosis of exclusion. Now let's look at stroke as an etiology or in the differential. This is one of the other possibilities in your differential diagnosis. Um, I would think of looking at stroke if the onset was very sudden and not associated with any other bradykinetic type movements. Sudden onset of anything neurologic almost always is associated with something that has impeded a specific area of the brain. Anxiety. If the tremor is noted in the bilateral upper extremities, progressive and associated with anxiety causing activities, then it is most likely associated with anxiety. Start by treating the anxiety. Once the anxiety is under control, reassess the tremulousness. And if it is not uh, resulted, then go back to your differential diagnosis, your assessment and questioning and, and look for another etiology. So another differential, uh, substance use. Sometimes tremor can be associated with the use of substances that affect a variety of receptors. These substances can include alcohol, cocaine, heroin, amphetamines, methadone, um, multiple of those substances. Which then also leads into a differential cause of the tremor that is substance withdrawal. This kind of goes along with the previous differential, um, as well as the anxiety associated with the inability to obtain a substance that the patient was used to receiving on a regular basis. Now, uh, last in our differential that we're going to discuss is musculoskeletal disorders. This is less common, but can occur if there is an impairment of the ability of that affected area to withstand the demands being placed on it. For example, if there's a wasting of the muscles in the lower extremities um, or a muscle impairment such as rhabdomyolysis or muscular dystrophy, the stress of trying to hold the body weight up can cause tremulousness of the lower extremities. One of the neurologic things that can affect musculoskeletal is like um, mus uh, multiple sclerosis or um, other like a radiculopathy that is keeping the, the muscles from getting neurologic signal that tell them to move. So, so once again, we have validated the need to do a very thorough interview of the patient to correlate with the physical findings. You should almost always have made your diagnosis before you order any diagnostic studies. Get the history. Take the time to investigate the situation. Do not be afraid. If you're on the fence, no worries. Go ahead. Send them to the neurologist. With something as simple as an intention tremor, though, this can be managed within your scope of practice. Anxiety can be managed by you. If you believe that there is a musculoskeletal etiology, start with the testing. Take a look at the low back. Is there radiculopathy that may be stopping that innervation to the muscle? Do a CKMB and a sedimentation rate to see if something maybe is there like the rhabdomyolysis. Specifically, ask about substance use. When you do, make the patient aware that sometimes that type of tremor can be associated with withdrawal, withdrawal or excessive use. And the patient still may not be honest with you with that direct questioning. It's just, they just may not be. But at least you've put the seed in their head as to what might be causing that tremor, which will give them some satisfaction. Remember, it's about them, not you. But we want to make a difference. If you have abnormal findings on your exam, order an MRI of the brain without contrast to start with. 
This will let you know if there's a tumor pressing on the area that's that could be causing the tremor, if there's been a stroke in that area, or if there's something else to see in there. The, the thing with Parkinson's disease specifically is that, like I said, there's really no diagnostic studies for Parkinson's. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that you've checked everything else. You've done a panel to look at heavy metals. You have done imaging studies to assess for the things previously mentioned. You have ruled out an intention tremor, alcoholism, anxiety, and you have put your assessment skills into play. I know that this was a very intense and heavy topic for today's top podcast, but I really hope that you're, you've learned something. Um, give me some feedback. Was it helpful to you or was it too much? Do you think that you could put this information into your practice right away, like right now, tomorrow, today, whenever you go back to work? Do you feel more confident in assessing tremor? Please let me know. I want feedback. I like to hear from you guys. I just like to give you some information that I have learned that I didn't know and wish someone had taught me more of. Our clinical studies and programs are not always able to give us all of these special pieces of information. You know, we read what it, we read about it in the book. We we do that real that clinical type of information with it from the book. But when we go out into the real world, we don't always get to practice this like it is in the book. And there's always other factors involved. And the book is just one thing, one focus. But so, and when you're trying to learn everything all at once, it's impossible to remember everything. So uh, again, I always want to thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast, or maybe you're reading this on the um, the the blog or the email we send out if you've signed up for our newsletter. Um, but if you're loving it, give me a review. You know, go into iTunes, give me a review, even if it's just popping on some stars. You don't even have to write anything because this helps others to find the podcast um, to help with their practice as well. And you can, of course, find more of me and what I'm up to on healthinterventions.net, our Facebook, our Instagram, show notes, you know, um, transcript of this can be found at nphealthinterventions.com forward slash 10. While you're there, sign up for that newsletter I just talked about so you don't miss out on anything and have a great week filled with many, many health interventions. Thank you for listening to Health Interventions for Your Practice. If you like this podcast, please take the time to rate, review, and share. If you'd like more health interventions for your practice, you can visit mphealthinterventionsforproviders.com and sign up for the Health Interventions newsletter.